Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I'd have quit long ago. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And finally, as a sword person, let me invite you to my online community, swordpeople.com, where you can interact with all sorts of people who are into historical martial arts in one way or another, without trolls, ads, algorithms, or Russian sex bots getting in the way. It's built on the Mighty Networks platform, which means we are paying for hosting and the use of their software, servers, and tech support, so we are the customers. We are not handing over our data to be sold to commercial interests, and so there is no incentive for algorithm-driven fear-mongering to maximize time on the platform. It's as pure as social media can be. There are four levels of membership. Free, this gives you access to the main discussion areas and events, etc. Or, at £5 a month, you can join Support Sword People, which gives you access to all of the above, plus the satisfaction of helping to support the platform, and access to live streams and my train-along sessions. Then there's the Solo Scholars at £20 a month, which gives you access to all of the above, plus all of my online courses that can be done alone, which are solo training, footwork, breathing, meditation, and recreating historical swordsmanship from historical sources. And finally, there is the Mastering the Art of Arms level at £40 a month, which gives you access to all of the above, plus all of my online courses, such as the Complete Longsword Course, Complete Rapier, Medieval Sword and Buckler, and How to Teach. There are no paid ads, no paid promotions, nothing like that, which means we are entirely dependent on the users of the platform to pay for it, so if you're thinking about joining, please do consider one of the paid options. So, if you'd like to join us and think you can behave yourself like a reasonable adult, because the code of conduct is absolute and enforced with an iron hand, which is why it's such a nice place to spend time, go to swordpeople.com and click Request to Join. It's fast, easy, and straightforward. You can get Sword People on your phone or other device by downloading the Mighty Networks app and signing in. Now, without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Ian Davis, who is a historical fencing instructor at Boston Armitare, specialising in Italian fencing from the 14th to the 16th centuries. So, without further ado, Ian, welcome to the show. Okay, thanks for having me. Well, it's nice to actually meet you. I've actually been to Boston, but you didn't come to my seminar. I was um, I was aware of that seminar and had intended to go. I, re- I don't remember what happened that weekend. 
And then, I'm sorry, this is extremely bad manners of me. I am just teasing. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I, I don't remember. I had a very strong desire to go because you were teaching coaching, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was, I think at least one day was how to teach. Yeah. Or how, one day was how to teach and another one was how to train, something like that. We had um, the like people who did attend were under orders to bring value back to the club uh, that we <laughs> okay. surely knew would be imparted. Well, I, I hope they 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 did so because it was a, it was a fun weekend, um, yeah. and I'm very jealous of you living in the same city as the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. That's yes. Just, oh my god! You got a chance to go. <laughs> oh, oh yes, yes. I had a, I had a a day so a free day in Boston and walking in. And you see this this courtyard that is it's like she fell in love with Italy in 1450 and just decided to recreate it in Boston. Mm-hmm. And it was it's just it's just miraculous. And I mean the whole the whole museum is absolutely crammed full of world class art. Mm-hmm. I mean she had the first Botticelli ever seen in America. Oh, I didn't realize that. Right. Yeah. I mean she was she was at that level. Yeah. And you know, and also the biggest heist, the biggest art heist in history, yep. where about $500 million worth of art was stolen, came from the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum. Yep. The story of it is incredible. But you go through the museum and it doesn't look like anything's missing. Mm-hmm. So Even with the museum, empty frames. Right. Like, there's there's just so much stuff. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right. like, oh my, and like, like, some of the things I took pictures of included this... This book just casually sitting on a little book stand, and the book stand was some fabulous 15th century thing, mm-hmm. and the book itself was made probably in around 1550, 1600, and they're just sitting there on the table because that's where you leave your book. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, being able to, um, she had uh, some of those screens that were like uh, carved wood. Italian screens from the 15th yeah. century and I can I can get my face right up against it and see you know that there were um, the chisel wasn't particularly well sharpened in one area so you can see where it left tool marks wow. uh, yeah. things like that where you get your face right up to an object yeah. and you're like oh I actually I can see the work that that occurred here yeah I, the last time I was uh, in a really good museum with friends was us it's in uh uh, what do you call it? Uh, Washington last year, mm-hmm. and with uh, David Biggs and Kayatan Sadowski, we went to the Smithsonian, and there was some furniture there. I think it's David's a woodworker; he makes lutes. Kaya is getting into woodworking, and I used to be a professional cabinet maker, right? Oh, and okay. there is, yeah, and there is there was some furniture there that had us. I mean, literally lying on our backs on the floor, looking up at the underneath of a piece of furniture, and and the custodian was like. Okay. And then they came over and when they realized that it was like, it wasn't just weirdos being weird. It was actually, we had a specialist interest and then they were like, Oh, right. Okay. And, and that's really interesting. And you can have a look at this and da, da, da. yeah, they were all, they were super nice to us, but Very yeah, cool. just, just being able to get your face right up to the piece and really see how it was made. Like there's a conoid bench um, by George Nakashima there, which I've, I know the piece obviously because it's world famous if you're a furniture geek, but I'd never actually seen one in the wood before. Mm-hmm. And it was made about 50, 60 years ago, and it is still dead flat, right? Mm-hmm. And it is a like a two and a half inch thick piece of, I think, walnut, if I remember, and it is still dead flat. Mm. Like, how he managed that, 
I mean, he must have he must have kind of come at the thickness bit by bit over, um, you know, playing off a you know, half an inch, maybe quarter inch each side, something like that. Leave it to to settle. Playing off a bit more, leave it to settle. Playing off a bit more, leave it to settle. I mean, mm-hmm. and just sneak up on it so that all of the internal tensions and stuff have have sort of worked themselves out by the yeah. time he gets to the final thing. Oh my god, yeah. just stunning. But. The average listener does not tune in to listen to me wank on about furniture. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So shall I get on with actually interviewing you? <laughs> yeah, why not? Let's, let's um, get this. All right. So, so um, are you still in Boston? I am. That's why I'm all bundled up this morning. It's not even cold, but it's wet because we're near oh, the yes. ocean. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm in Boston. Uh, I'm a transplant. Started in, I grew up in Indiana and then... Um, Came to Boston after my stint in the Peace Corps because uh, a bunch of my Peace Corps friends were here, so it became the uh, city. Okay, so I didn't know you were in the Peace Corps. What? What? Okay, some people won't even know what that is. So, right. can you tell us what it is and what you did? Um, so, uh, the Peace Corps. Um, the Peace Corps is not going to like me saying this, but it is uh, largely a cheap, benign propaganda program um, where the U.S. Okay. sends Americans all over the world. Um, Largely so that people can get to know an American. Um, it really is, okay. you know, we get embassy passports. Um, we're not, we're not under like contractor passports or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and my job ostensibly was a youth development volunteer. So, uh, I lived in a small rural village in, uh, the Andes at high altitude in Peru. Um, really? Where in Peru? I used to live in Peru. You did? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was in I was in Chiquian, uh, which okay. is right near uh, do you know the Waiwash Mountain Range? No, in where is Ankash? that? Okay, yeah. That's a bit of Peru I never went to. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of people get uh, deep deep, that's, deep that, out in that is Ankash. really remote. Yeah, I was uh, our there was a, a a bundle of maybe six towns in this valley, but we were 200 kilometers from uh, Waraz and we were uh, six hours from Lima, just straight out into the mountains. Um, wow. So, uh, I say ostensibly because it was a farming community where, um, when the kids got off school, they went and worked. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in the summer, Lima was such, it was one bus ride away. So most of the kids went to Lima to hang out with family. Uh, so right. I, I, I hung out, I whittled, uh, I tried my best to do projects. Um, uh, I, the idea is that you're doing development work. Um, I helped develop a new like youth leadership curriculum that was focused on the youth in the area, generating and defining what that looked like. Um, and I proposed it to the Muni, didn't hear back for most of two years. Uh, and then actually in my final week before leaving, before my service ended. So sorry, is, is the Muni the municipality of the town? Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. The okay. municipality. Um, they, they finally showed up and were like, yeah, we'd love for you to run this program. And I was like, oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> well. <laughs> honestly, that sounds from, from, from my limited experience, that sounds a very Peruvian approach. <laughs> yeah. The, the good news is, um, Peace Corps is very iterative. They always drop somebody, you know, there's always somebody next. And so, okay. um, I wrote a nice report and said, basically people around here want a tourism business volunteer. And, uh, the, the, uh, national office listened. The next person who came in was a guy with a background in tourism and a business volunteer. And he couldn't even find time to leave site. Like he couldn't go into our Oz, um, because wow. he was just constantly working. So, you know, uh, okay. that's how it goes. 
So, so the, the net result of this is a bunch of people in the Andes think Americans are nice. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Um, okay. And they, you know, um, the first question I got asked when I arrived was like, ah, so you're American. Um, what's with all the war? Um, <laughs> was actually the first question my host dad posted, posed to me. And I was like, man, I don't like it either. Let's, let's talk a little bit about how, you know. Yeah. So did you speak Spanish before you left? Not well. Yeah, you spoke it pretty well by the time you got home. Yeah, nobody in my town spoke Spanish. Um, I learned the tiniest bit of Quechua, but nobody really spoke Quechua in my town. Um, so how, what language were they speaking in, in your village? Where you, where you Spanish. Oh, Spanish. Okay. So yeah. your hometown in America, no one spoke Spanish. Yep. All right. Go, I, go, I go, I go yeah. there and nobody speaks English, so I had to learn right. Spanish. Yeah, um, sure. And uh, I, turns out I learned, uh, and this is, I'll, I'll loop us back to swords, um, it's relevant because the ty- the way the Spanish that I learned m- a generation or two ago, people were kind of forced to transition from Quechua to Spanish. Yeah. Um, and in that transition, people learned like very formal, old timey Don Quixote esque Spanish. Yeah. Um, and so then that evolved into what what I learned, uh, and the end result was I can pretty well read Italian like 14th to 16th century Italian, I can actually pretty well read it. Um, Honestly, my my sort of segue into learning Italian martial arts was I found that because I spoke Spanish from living in Peru as a teenager, I could pretty much handle the Italian at a basic level just from the Spanish I knew. Yeah. And it didn't, it didn't take that much to convert. Although now, of course, they're mixed in my head. So yeah. <laughs> when I go to Spain... I try and speak Spanish and some Italian comes out. When I go to Italy, I try and speak Italian and some Spanish comes out. And it takes me a day or two in country to actually kind of sort out the mixture in my head into one language or the other. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, the, so you grew up in Peru. Yeah, I lived there from 1986 to 1992. Okay, yeah. Uh, my dad was working there as a, uh, he's a... He was a vet. And so he was setting up a veterinary field service in southern Peru. So we lived in Arequipa ah. for six years. Ooh, Arequipa is beautiful. Arequipa is lovely, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It, is, it is, of course, the finest city in Peru. And anyone who says differently <laughs> just doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> they, they haven't been to Arequipa if they don't agree, yeah. <laughs> Clearly not. Clearly not. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I, so the Spanish did turn out to be super useful. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, my Spanish was the sort of chatting to my teenage friends Spanish rather Mm -hmm. than formal kind of classical Spanish, which means that, um, I would, I would seriously, I seriously struggle to read a like 16th century Spanish source because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it has, it has so much, so much specificity and so much formality in the use of language that I'm not familiar with. I'm constantly like digging out dictionaries and, you know, struggling along. It's but, awful. Yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. a reason I didn't wind up with Distressa. Yeah, and also honestly, I find the Distressa sources to be somewhat. On the one hand, they're very often very academic, but not actually sufficiently technically specific. Mm, yeah, um, and 500 pages for something that you know Distressa in its core could be summarized on a on a, a front and back of an eight and a half by eleven, but right. Instead, we have 500 pages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I prefer like Fiore where, you know, he tells you, you know, await the peasant's blow in a narrow stance with your left foot forward. Now, that's the kind of instructions I need. Yep. <laughs> um, okay, so how did you get into um, actually 
practicing historical martial arts. So you moved to Boston because you have friends from the Peace Corps there, and then something happened, and you got into swords. Yeah, so uh, I was really, I was actually reading about and researching HEMA uh, long before I came to Boston. Um, okay. My my original background was Filipino martial arts, um, and it would have been 2013. Um, I got this, someone pointed out that there was this issue where Spanish martial arts had like heavily infected traditional Filipino martial arts. Uh, yeah. and I was, I was fascinated by that question. Like, okay, well, to what degree, how so the Spanish had martial arts? What are you talking about? Um, which makes sense, right? Like Escrima, you know, yeah, it means fencing in Italian and in Spanish. It's like, yeah, yeah. And, and they, <laughs> and, they turn and they it into a spada. Yeah, yeah. Yep. They have spada and dagger. Yep. Like, <laughs> yeah, of, of course. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I started researching. I, I started on the question of what is kind of true original Filipino martial arts. And then okay. that led me into, I, you know, I'm starting to look at, I see these books where there's diagrams and stuff showing sword interactions and things. And I was like, wait, there's like a scientific theory here. Mm -hmm. That's, that's very odd and different from how I've approached the problem. Um, and then that just opened up into, you know, um, historical fencing in general. Uh, the first thing I was looking at was actually Bolognese because I was looking at the Distressa and I was like, I can't, I can't wrap my head around this. There's not enough pictures. <laughs> Next step, yeah. Marazzo, right? Um, and then... Uh, Who is no better a writer, must be said. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure he's very cogent if you're his dear son, Sebastiano, but <laughs> for the rest of us. But uh, I think Sebastiano didn't really actually have to read the book. He could get Danny right. just to tell him what to do. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, yeah, I started looking at that and my um, my background in that, I... I Figured out, I saw they had two swords and I was like, oh, that's got to be like double stick. Um, and not really at all. Um, very, no. very different uh, approach to that problem. Um, so I had a bunch of, you know, I started with Edgerton Castle and uh, oh, okay. Hutton and mm -hmm. slowly dawned on me how wrong they were about most things. And then um, I was I, like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, okay. Or yeah, maybe not wrong, but pushing no, it through no, no. a particular lens. Right. Okay, when it comes to classical fencing and the saber fencing of the late 19th century, they're mm, spot yep. on, Yep. right? But when they're looking at the, should we say, 17th century Italian stuff through the lens of, well, actually, swordsmanship has improved and developed and evolved over the last 200 years. Obviously, it's better now. Right. And they were wrong in that. Mm. So their lens was wrong. Um, but, you know, I have a huge affection for them because I got into historical martial arts because I found Hutton's The Sword in the Centuries mm. in my granny's house because my grandfather had been a fencer and it's it's like oh my god there's like actual martial arts from like sword period yeah <laughs> oh my god I have to find out more so yeah. No, I love them. It's the, you know, like there wouldn't be modern HEMA without the 19th century HEMA movement because they, they left yeah. some records we could read. And so. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I just always chuckle at like, uh, trying to use, trying to look at Bolognese fencing in the terms of like, you know, Perry and Cart, Perry and Sixtus. <laughs> like, it's like, guys, there was a terminology, there was like a lexicon yeah. here. You could have learned it, you know. Yeah, I, and again, one unfortunate artifact that I personally picked up 
was for the first few years of my own historical martial arts training sort of in the early 90s, I was basically trying to get the historical martial arts I was looking at to fit my sport fencing background, mm. right? So any parry on the inside was the equivalent of a parry in cart, when in fact, the whole notion of how a parry should be done with a medieval sword is fundamentally at odds with how you do it with a foil, mm. right? You don't, you don't um, interpose your forte with their debile, um, or their, your fort to their feeble, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, you hit the sword away middle to middle. And that's still true in the Bolognese. But if, you, if you're thinking parry cart when you do an inside parry, you're just going to be doing it wrong. Mm, yep. Um, which I was for a long time. But, you know, mm. we learned eventually. Yep. <laughs> Get enough broken fingers and, yeah, you pick up some, some things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so, so you got into Morozzo. Yeah, I, yeah. Then so what I, happened? Kali, Destreza, Morozzo. Um, then I went to the Peace Corps and I had a lot of time to read. Uh, and so I did a lot of reading. There were, that was, um, you know, there was, uh, a lot of, I could go into, when I was in Waraz, I could jump online and download as many HEMA PDFs as I could get my hands on. Okay. So what, what year were you there? What, what I was there, uh, 2014 to 2016. Oh, quite recently. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, was just reading a lot, came back with some slightly better notions. Like I, I kind of disabused myself of some of the ways that I was viewing it from the Kali background. And then, um, but I wasn't like a practitioner yet. And yeah. when I was looking at where to move, I came back to Lafayette, Indiana during, um, the election cycle and, uh, won't get political, but basically <laughs> I said to myself, it's time for me to go. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. And so I, I moved to Boston, at least in part because Boston Armazari was here. Um, okay. I, like I'd been looking at a couple of cities and this was one with a well-organized HEMA club. Um, so I moved here and sh- just showed up. I didn't even do the beginner's class. I, I walked in and was like, let me show you things that I know. And they were like, yeah, that's, that's fine. You don't need to do the beginner class. And then I've just been at it with them ever since. So. Okay. Uh, so what is your main area of interest? These days, it's almost exclusively wrestling dagger and harness. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you've uh, abandoned the sword altogether. But this this show is called The Sword Guy. So I think yeah, you have to yeah. stick with swords if you're going to come I, to the show. I love, That's the rules. I, I love the long sword as bayonet. I'm really into that. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm really into that. Uh, and, you know, there's there's uh, like the Guard of Breve and we're, we see Bicorno uh, in harness. We see uh, Mezzana Porta de Ferro. So it's, it's there. Um, but um, I just, yeah, I'm really interested in that, like body contact distance and spear and poleaxe and all that. Uh, I, I built okay. out a harness over the past couple of years and have done some fighting in that. Okay. But, so uh, so are you like starting out with a interpretation of Fiore or are you starting from some other? Basis? Yeah. So working... Um, I, when I started transitioning into harness, my big focus was to was actually on the material culture. My background mm-hmm. is anthropology. Um, it was a four fields approach, and then um, what uh, is a four fields approach? Uh, Bioanthro, linguistics, cultural, and archaeology. I believe um, it's been a couple uh, of yeah. years. <laughs> sure, sure. So but, okay. I didn't stick well enough. So, so basically, your anthropological standpoint includes language material culture biology stuff archaeology stuff that's yep. it. 
Right. Yeah. Okay. And so I, I took that approach and I said, okay, well, step one is material culture. I want to get to know what it feels like to wear armor. Um, mm-hmm. And so building the harness was a big piece of that. And then um, started to, started actually from physical testing against historical male replicas. I wanted to find out what it actually took to stick a sword point through historical mail on a freestanding target. Okay. Um, Tell us a bit about that because that's always interesting. Where yeah. So uh, what what I found, like, so um, what I used was basically we have a we have a, essentially a pelt um, mm-hmm. and put a heavy bag on that um, on top of the on the face of the heavy bag was, you know, padded armor and then some eight millimeter ID um, male good like one millimeter thick wire, a good reproduction, all individually riveted some actually some nice people in I want to say Finland handmade this mail. Okay, for for your tests, for yeah, they were trimmings off of my first uh, male shirt. Uh, oh right, okay, yeah, and so um, you know there there are some aspects of uh, you'll still see things where like people will come and place the point against the male and then kind of mm-hmm. couch and drive, um, and on a freestanding target that tends to just shove it backwards. Yeah. Um, you're not, you're so, not going to split the links with that. No, right. So the um, but once you move out to. Um, I, I, I'm going to settle it in. This is arbitrary and there needs to be mm-hmm. better testing, I will say. Um, but about an arm's length distance for at least my body from the target so I can move mm-hmm. my body into it uh, and generate that impulse. Um, you can get uh, link compromise or link breakage. And so um, starting from that perspective, right? Like I need, if I'm going to actually punch through mail, I need to, I need to deliver a thrust from at least an arm's length away. Right. Um, proved to be very effective. And then there are other aspects of this. Um, if you, uh, you know, that image of posta breve from the PD where it's like all the way up under the arm, the, the right hand is all the way up under the armpit, the cross guards braced on the, um, across the breastplate. Um, yeah, yeah, you've got the book right there. I, I, of course, I have the book right here. We're in my yes. study. Right. Um, okay. I'm just going to make sure I've got the right one. And then, of course, we will. Uh, we will put it on in the show notes so people can see what we're talking about. Yep. Um, Posta Breve La Serpentina, is that the one you mean? Yeah, I believe so. The first, the first guard here? Yes. So, uh, okay. that, that like couch structure versus, you know, yep. if you look in the Getty, the rear hand is a little lower. Yep. I put in my mind, I put the two of those as a continuum, right? We've got a stop motion. Yeah. So, here. so you go from here to fuck you. Yeah. And, and yeah. brace it up. What yeah. the, the worst, if you want to pop right through mail, mm-hmm. s- putting it like that. So adopting that, um, couched position and then just, yeah. and, and just like to, uh, an accrescent pass, right? Uh, I yeah. the left foot, pass the right foot. It'll, I, I've, I've put, you know, two thirds of a blade through a heavy bag through mail wow. that way, right? Like, and uh, maybe not too, uh, about half of the blade probably. So now you're, you're getting about a foot and a half of steel into the body. Yes, through through the mail, through the mail. That's what we like to hear. Yes, right. It works, right? Like, yeah, and it's, yeah, sure. it's replicable. Anybody else can go set up a freestanding target. Um, okay, so how? How? Let Let me just because this actually is super important yeah. because it totally changes how armored combat counter should be done. Right. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is basically, if you're if you stand there and you use your arms to shove the sword through the mail, it's unlikely to work. But if you catch the sword against the body and walk it through, it punches through much more effectively. So, yes. so, 
tip speed is less important than the mass you put behind it for this? Uh, I think what I would say at this point is uh, it's a little column A, little column B. Um, okay. And so um, from from doing this, I think you need a ballistic hit to compromise a link. And then in the next, you know, millisecond, mass needs to go through the target. Ah, okay. So, so basically the point needs to be moving quickly and you to hit the link hard. Deform and it. Then you it. Sh- then the weight comes through. Okay. Yes. And if you separate those two, it actually still works as long as you get your first compromise. Um, right. With my buddy Adrian, um, who uh, his background was actually infantry. Um, and so he'd done like bayonet training and stuff. And mm-hmm. he came up and, and just hit it bayonet style and it didn't go. And then I was like, okay, but he, he left it there, right? He left it extended. Yeah. And I was like, okay, now turn to the couch position and drive up into it. And we heard this disgusting pop. And then it just suddenly jumped forward, you know, wow, a couple inches into the target. So the, the key piece is, uh, is, is compromising the link, which takes a ballistic yeah. hit. Um, okay. By the way, do you have all this written up anywhere? Uh, not written up. I've got a video on my YouTube channel and on my Instagram. Um, okay. So we'll drop me a link to put into the show notes and we'll make sure, sure. that the video is there in the show notes so people can see this. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have a feeling that this really ought to be an article. Yeah. And I, I don't think necessarily it was scientific enough yet, um, to really kind of, I'd like to, I'd like to get a sled, um, or something that, that is generating consistent, uh, force. I'd like to get a standing target that's, um, you know, my weight in my harness um, and and try it like that. But um, it's it's certainly something that could be written up because I think it's you know there are there are rule sets where I see people like kayak in and kind of place their point and yeah. it counts and that just sure. shouldn't count. <laughs> like, well, and that, it depends in my opinion. because because um, like one of the things you can do from that position is going through a takedown. Yeah, now, right? okay, yeah, yeah. And once you've got the person on the ground, I mean, remember, when you're in armor, your center of gravity is about maybe anything between 6 and 12 inches higher than it is out of armor, generally right. speaking, which means it's quite easy to tip people over, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And when they're on the ground, then you can slam the point in wherever you want, and it should It'll be work. relatively, yeah, re- and you can go through the visor or whatever, so... Couching and driving against a downed opponent, um, we've done that. Put the bag on the ground. That works too, right? Especially yeah. if you place the point and you kind of give a little hop, you know, <laughs> two, two, 240 pounds hitting like a hammer on the cross guard. That's it's going to get the job done. Um, and it, it actually, with a dagger, um, you don't really even need that distance, especially if it's a specialist dagger. And so... Um, you know, you can stand fixed-footed in within that arm's length distance and put a dagger through, as long as your elbow is near your core, so that you're yeah. sinking. Yeah, so you're connected. Yeah, and that's where um, the if you go look at what Fiore has, right? Mm-hmm. You you know, you mentioned takedowns and things. Um, it's extremely binary. We have the guards and their thrusts. We have the uh, you know Vera Croce or Croce Bastarda, which as you enter trying to hit me. You're, you're, you're coming from beyond that arm's length distance. Yeah. Right. And so it's just the exchange of thrusts. You walk onto my point, yeah. your energy. And I, as long as I'm fixed and solid, I can receive that and punch through your mail. Um, and then, so there's that. There's, there's thrusts and crossings from distance. And then all of the plays are 
wrestling, including, you know, lift the guy's visor up and, and stick him. Like, you, you're yeah. probably not going to, like, couch and drive through mail in that wrestling distance, but you can do other things to get around the armor. Um, yeah. And that's what we see in the book. So um, I found that really interesting starting from the material context and then coming to some conclusion, some conclusions. And then I go and look at the book and I'm like, ah. See, I'm that. curious as to um, why you can do it with a dagger when you can't do it with a sword at the same measure. I think attachment and stiffness. Um, it, the dagger is just much closer to your, if you, if you have your elbow attached and you can, you can actually like, especially with a non-specialist dagger, if mm -hmm. I throw a strike where my arm extends and my elbow is distant from my body, mm -hmm. male will stop it. No problem. Um, I have a, I've, I've got one of the Todd Cutler Wallace collection rondels. Mm -hmm. You can do whatever you want. It's going to go through, um, with that particular piece. Um, well, that's the thing. Cause we see like specialists. Daggers designed for armored combat, which have that sort of male splitting quality to them. Yeah. Um, and we also see swords with similar sort of point geometries. So what kind of sword are you using for these tests? Uh, type 15. Uh, I got a type 15 arming sword. Um, so not, a, not, a, not the A with the extended uh, grip. Um, and I, that's mostly what we've used. We've used... Those, those crappy Hanway, uh, I actually love them, but they're, you know, cheaper Hanway, uh, bastard swords. Those worked okay. So you sharpen, uh, you sharpen them up though, surely? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause those come blunt, right? Sometimes, uh, Cult of okay. Athena in the US, you can, they have a sharpening service, so you can buy it, uh, sharpened from them. Okay. Um, but then we also tried out, um, do you remember Mike O'Brien? He did attend your workshop. He's one of our coaches. In case he's listening, I'll say, of course I do. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Mike has. It was uh, three years ago now. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and, and pre pandemic, which of course. That's no, right. Four years ago. It was, kind of, yeah. it was April 2019. Jesus. Yeah. Yes. I need but to get back Before to time ended. <laughs> yes. Um, but he has a, he has an Albion ring egg. And that was really interesting because the, um, in terms of the degree of diminishment from a couch and drive, I'll actually caveat my own statement about arm's length. If, with that Albion ring egg, the point is so fine that you get nearly three inches into the target without compromising a link at all. Wow. Which, in the well, right spot... But then, okay, a lot, a lot of the historical mail is a lot finer than the stuff you're using. If you said you yeah. had eight mil rings... Yeah, eight I mil mean, some, some, some of them are like three. Yeah, right. You're not getting around like a, a male standard. You're not getting through that probably ever. No. That's why that it's and, and like why would you if you could just like wrestle the guy down and flip it up and then spike yeah. him in the back of the head, which is in Fiore. Um, so the um, yeah the like the the different weapons definitely matter. Um, doing dagger tests with like uh, the Todd Cutler Basilard, where the yeah. the tip profile is much wider. That's very hard to get through, except for, uh, interestingly enough, the reverso by which many men have lost their lives. Um, that, with good elbow attachment, you can have the crappiest. I've done it with um, uh, a bollock dagger, right? So mm -hmm. a completely non-specialist work knife. The reverso, with good elbow attachment, can punch through male. Um, so um, you're saying that for male penetrating purposes, a reverso is more effective than a dritter? I think so, yes. That doesn't surprise me at all. Right. But it is it is counterintuitive to people who haven't done a lot of cutting. Yeah. And right. it's the setup 
that you need yeah. to do that, right? So Fiore, we we fire the we fire the Drito, they put the hand in the way, we counter grapple, the reverso goes into the chest, elbow press, the reverso goes into the back. It takes um, you know, if I just cross chamber my dagger and present my elbow to you, you're gonna put a hand on it. And now <laughs> sure. I now I can't do it, right? So we have to kind of built into the the anti-armor work is concepts like uh, first intention, second intention, all of that is is necessary to right. set up certain and, and here's the thing. When it comes to power generation, there's this myth that the step helps you generate power, right? But if you've yes. ever seen a lumberjack cutting down a tree with an axe, they, they do not walking. ever step. Right. Right? Because you get vastly more power if both feet are on the ground. And so you can drive off the feet and with a hip rotation, slam whatever it is you're slamming into whatever it is you're trying to hit. Right. Right? So a lot of, I think a lot of what's going on is that first mandrito is getting you safely across distance into, into measure. And then your feet are planted. So the, the extra force you're getting from, for that reverso is, coming from the fact that both feet are planted and you're driving it off the back leg. Right. And total say. core rotation, all that. Yeah. I think what's interesting about that too, when we've uh, added the one, an arm, a thrust against male only counts for us when it's delivered from at least an arm's length away or received from an arm's length away. Uh, that makes it easy for judging, right? Like I just, I look with my eyes and if the two people started from a good enough distance and the thrust lands, great, right? I don't have to worry yeah. about much in the way of quality beyond that. But what it results in is this very, like, two people kind of circling each other and positioning and all those guard transitions and stuff that, that Fiore is, is uh, harping on about. That's where you trap people, right? Like, I, I do my, my I go to that high serpentina guard, faint it, I get somebody to raise their hands, and that's when I step in and drop my hands and hit from low. Um, things like that, where there's a lot, it, it results in a very different uh, looking kind of armored fighting that I, I think is really, it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of entrapment, I think, that it creates. Yeah, and, and there's all sorts of implications for that in the text. For example, in the Polak section, where Dentishigaro is opposed by Postolidano Destra, mm-hmm. um, he says that, you know, by stepping the front foot out of the way as you strike, the parry will fail, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, you're angulating the attack. So the parry from Dentishigaro would clear it no problem, but because you're coming in from sort of around to the defender's right, you just angulate behind that parry and strike. And of course, if they know it's coming, it's the easiest thing in the world to parry. But if they think it's coming straight at them, their parry just fails and they get smacked in the face. Yes. This is <laughs> incredibly satisfying. Yeah. And this is, um, you know, you had Liz on here. Um, really interesting talking to her about mounted combat and the ways yeah. that um, two people are running at each other. And if because the timing needs to be so perfect, if you just pull back on your horse for a split second and get the stutter step out of yeah. your opponent... Then you hit and they don't. It's it's stuff like that that I think there's a really deep layer that um, quality rules like this start to allow to be expressed. Um, like we know they're there because uh, of things like you just pointed out, right? We know they're there. But it, uh, if I, for example, with the poleaxe, we require that that lands unimpeded. Um, if you right. get if you if you get your haft kind of in the way, even if it's crappy, 
we're going to ignore it, right? Yeah. Well, I also because the army will take the rest. Right. And so, but an, but to land an unimpeded poleaxe strike. <laughs> okay. I, I, I've, I've received an unimpeded poleaxe strike on my armor before. And yeah, it, it's, it's rough. Um, <laughs> well, and, and we make, there's like a specific line in the rule set I've been using that's like, force does not matter um, for this. Land it unimpeded. I don't want to watch people get concussed through their armet, you know. No. Um, and I, I fought uh, Connor Kemp Cowell uh, out mm-hmm. of Philadelphia this past December. And there's one where I was a- I was able to like faint with the heel, draw him out to one side, and it sounds like a car accident uh, <laughs> when it lands. Yeah, and uh, it's it's stuff like that. He was fine, but it was like so. Yeah. So what what Polax heads are you using? Are you using the rubber ones? I like the Helgies specifically. Um, they're very rubber, yeah. Yeah, they're a rubber. They're a rubber head. Yeah. Um, I. You know, I'm I'm in order to be able to hit people sufficiently, in my opinion, I I, th- I think I like uh, the rubber poleaxe heads and I like um, I just recently made aluminum blade. You know, the Rawlings synthetic swords. Yeah. I just made an aluminum blade uh, two two aluminum blades for that, that um, all the same fittings come on so I can smack people with the cross guard and not actually hurt them um, so what you're aluminium so you've got an aluminium cross guard no uh it's the sin- the okay, synthetic so why, so why why are you using an aluminium blade why don't you use a steel one um lightness um ease of production um like the you know one of the things that makes pole axes safe enough to hit each other with is 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 just getting rid of some mass um oh i see right so you're you're using the aluminium blade to reduce the overall mass of your sword as held like a polax. Yeah, and okay. um, for cheapness. Uh, harness is already a really expensive thing to get into, but Well, you I can... tell you, the, 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 when, it, when I need to e- equip a whole bunch of people with polaxes for a seminar, right, it's yeah. dead simple. What you do is you take your regular quarterstaff type sticks, sort of two meter long sticks, and you take a longsword and you duct tape the longsword to the stick. That's a great idea. It's so easy. Yeah. Right. And and, okay. You, you, you then have the, the cross guard, which is your axi bit. So you do have to be careful not to actually smack it through people's masks or whatever. Right. But you have it, it handles a lot closer to a polax than you might think because yeah. the mass is where it should be. It's about the right size, sometimes a bit long. Yeah. Um, if your stick is a bit short, you can let the sword poke out a little bit. But also yeah. the fact that the connection between the sword and the the stick is just duct tape. It's got a little bit of give in it. Right. And it's not going to take repeated abuse. Right. right? It'll so pop. If, if it'll break off. Yeah. It'll, it'll start to. Hard. So you can you can make it a bit safer by mm-hmm. using less duct tape. Right. I like that a lot. So, um, the So I want to be able to throw um, cross guard strikes and pommel strikes in the wrestling mm-hmm. distance because sure. it's in the text. Uh, and from using that type 15 arming sword... If you if you basically throw a right hook with uh, landing with the cross guard on fixed foot, oh yeah, right through, through. yeah, right through, um, and so, so right, I, right through mail, you say, right through mail. Excellent. So there's there's no safe way to to do that strike with a steel cross guard or, or no. arguably with a metal one. So that's where um, I wanted to take a, a standard fitting set that people have access to. Most people own one of those Rawlings synthetic swords, right? I don't. I don't have any plastic swords because I hate them. 
Okay. Well, yeah. Um, and I don't use, I have not used my Rawlings for years anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, and this was a way to like bring them back into use, but, um, you know, you just, you, you screw everything off, pull the grip, the cross guard, the pommel, slide it onto an aluminum blade. Now you have a specialist armor sword, um, and you can hit people with the cross guard because the cross guard will just kink. It's got a, it's plastic and it's got a big ball on it. Oh, the cross guard is plastic? Yes. Ah, and okay. the pommel is synthetic, so I can whack somebody in the head with it, and it might ring their bell a little bit. Ah, I see. I've got the wrong image in my head of a of a rolling because I don't use yeah. plastic swords at all. I have a. I, I I I seem to remember seeing sort of these nylon bladed swords with a steel cross guard and a steel pommel. I was thinking, those are the penties. Yeah, those okay. are the penties. What, 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 are, what are, I, so I wasn't seeing the safety advantage. Now you say, okay, it's a plastic cross guard and a plastic pommel. Now I get it. Okay. Yes. And you can yeah. bonk people really hard and uh, we're not yeah. going to John Clements anybody where, you know, your partner is wanting to throw up in their helmet. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that video, but yeah, a guy, a guy eats a pommel to the head and it it works. It, it does. It works of course well. it works. It yeah. works extremely well. Um, but yes, there are good reasons why we don't do that to people. Yes. Uh, <laughs> unless we have the right equipment, then we can um, with some control. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and my feeling around the whole safety thing is it's, it's your behavior that makes things safe. Yeah. You can make anything dangerous if you choose Try to make it enough. dangerous. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, like there are some people who get their knickers in a twist when, you know, I mentioned doing light sparring with sharp swords. Right. Right. And no equipment, no safety equipment. It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not some holy grail of ultimate sword fighting. It's just another training modality, which will teach you certain things you won't learn anywhere else, which you can then later apply elsewhere. And it's just really interesting and useful. Right. right? But, but the risk profile doesn't suit everyone. And, and I'm not suggesting ever that everyone should do it. I'm just saying that it is something that I find extremely useful. Yep. Um, and it, but we do it's like, I don't know, safety, safety. It's like, but you drive a car. Right. Well, and go, so Pekiti Tirsi Akali, um, part of my background, we did lots of live blade work, both right. knives in the close range. Are, are we, you know, knives in the close range, you probably need to be doing pattern drills. Um, that you all know, right? It's, yeah, it's way too close. But once you back out into the Largo distance, uh, which is still called Largo and Kali also. <laughs> Interesting. You can, you can use a live blade and just not hit the person in the arm, you know? Yeah. And you, you can do bridging and grappling and all of this stuff is integrated. But it takes uh, a lot of precision and it takes not going super hard and it takes... Yeah. You know, uh, uh, and then you take some of that precision and apply it when you're using a safer training weapon. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. learning a skill set that it's a different skill set because you're trying not to hit a person. But if I can yeah. stop a sword three inches off your arm, I can stop it three inches through it. True. So, um, uh, yeah, it reminds me. I was, I was on one of these courses run by a friend of mine who does mostly um, Filipino type martial arts, and it was mm-hmm. a, a series of knife courses. We were doing this pattern drill where sharp on sharp and the attacker comes in and you do something and you end up with your blade right against their throat. Yeah. Right. But of course, of course you stop it three inches short because you're, you know, it's sharp sword. There's a sharp yeah. blade. Right. Yeah. So I'm doing this and I, I know the guy reasonably well. We've been on these seminars before and we're, we're training together and we're going a bit quick and da that. And it's my turn to do the thing. And I'm using a single edged knife, right? 
Yep. So the back is blunt. So go Flushed in and just, just 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 flip it to the back and stuck it in his thing. He went, <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that at home. It's yeah. naughty and bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's um but it was uh, so much fun. <laughs> right right there, you're in England these days, right? You said? Yeah, yeah. There's um I I I hope more Hema people go uh, actually talk to this guy. Are you aware of Nadar Singh and Shastra Vidya? I've Indian heard swordsmanship? Of, Yeah, I've, I've I've heard of him. Yep. Uh, I've seen some newspaper articles and stuff on him, but I'm not, maybe I should ask him to come on the show. I, I, uh, and I, I would like to just get more people. I'm I'm looking at so they do a lot of sharp on sharp training, um, mm-hmm. and apparently sometimes put the, the armor on so they can actually touch each other too. Right. That's some. That's yeah. a place I want to go to. Is like if I have harness, uh, let's let's blunt the tip off a sword. You can cut me. Um, I'll, I'll be fine because uh, yeah. because armor works right. So we could do you know um, unarmored longsword with clip tips in harness and it'll work. We'll be fine. Um, the some of the modalities of live blade training they're using in Shastra Vidya and you see there's one clip from some martial arts festival. This just reminded what you said reminded me of this where. Um, they're on a slightly springy floor. It's like a gymnastics floor and not like a, 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 you know, a solid ground. And one of the students, he's, he's showing some like, um, dealing with multiple skirmishing kind of stuff. And he, he's facing one direction. He turns around and puts the point out towards this guy's throat. And yeah. the, the guy is on this springier than expected floor and is coming forward oh, and shit. In, in the air. And you see that his body is up. He has no way of stopping his motion. And Nadar just turns, just turns the flat and slaps him in the chest with it as he walks past. Uh, <laughs> just to be like, buddy. And he pulls the microphone up and explains what just happened. Um, so like, I, I would look, if a guy can do that, sometimes you'll see people that are like, oh, it kind of looks like everybody's being compliant. I haven't gotten to feel the energy, so I would love to get yeah. people there. Who, I I trust your opinion, right? If you can work with okay. them and and you say, oh, well, this is kind of my uh, view on it. I I I take that as uh, you know something approaching gospel. Yeah. So I sh- I'll, I'll um, well, that's very flattering. Um, okay, I, I will I will I will look into it again. I've been meaning to um, get in touch with the wider martial arts community here in Britain for a while. Anyway, COVID yeah. didn't help. Yeah. Um, and I've been sort of head down with other stuff since, but yes, I've, I've actually been thinking about reaching out to our Sikh friends. Why are there elephants in Fiore and tigers? Why wouldn't that be? Yeah. The thing that I'm interested in, and one of the reasons why I want to get people with the Italian background in contact with, mm-hmm. uh, sh- the Shastra video folks in Pagano, there's this brief reference where he says, um, in regarding the history of Italian martial arts, he makes some passing comment about how the Romans encountered pieces of it in India and brought it back. Ah, that's a very, that's a very yeah, yeah. difficult argument to make. It is, <laughs> and it's it's not. But I, I think it's a. Uh, there are remember, certain... remember Hannibal and his elephants. I mean, there yeah, were, yeah, the, yeah. The, the the Romans had a. If you're going to get elephants and lions and stuff, well, for a start, there were lions in Europe until relatively recently. Mm, yeah. Um, they were, they were sort of hunted to extinction in Europe. Um, I forget when, but it's relatively recent. Um, elephants. I mean, the Romans were in Africa. Right. Now, if you're going to, if you're going to get an elephant to Italy, which is easier? Getting it from India or yep. getting it from Africa? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, which is closer? Yeah. So, the, I, so I'm not making, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, 
I think it's just more of like a curiosity. It's not like an actual sure. academic argument that I want to make. Um, but there's pieces like the sword in one hand, right? We start in Guardia mm. Soto del Braccio. Um, and then That's not what Fiore calls it, but then mind. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> um, it's something we see over and over again, right? The, through a couple of texts. Uh, yes, and, a, a point, point back and the sword on the is left. low on your left side. Yeah, yeah. held in the right but, hand. That's how most of like Shastravidya's forms actually begin with like a low cut okay. coming out of that, and then so it's just kind of interesting, right? It's a curiosity, sure. and uh, yeah, I, it would be it would be very interesting to to see. And it is worth remembering that uh, you know India had a massively sophisticated material and other culture like centuries before we did in Europe. Yeah, really. right. Like yeah, you know, look at what the Indians were doing in like eight hundred AD, and it's like. Really? How yeah. come? <laughs> how come they didn't just come over and colonize us? Right, <laughs> you know? in, in, indoor indoor heated baths at Harappa and Mohenjo-daro. Like, oh, okay, right. Yeah, okay. But to be fair, the Romans had those. I mean, sure. honestly, sure. honestly, central heating was better in Britain in Roman times than it is now. I think. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, honestly, the British do not know how to build houses, and they don't know how to heat them or insulate them either. I mean, I lived in Finland for a long time, and my standards are somewhat higher than what we find on this benighted island. But anyway, I'm getting slightly off topic. Right. I have a note here to tell me to ask you about bringing Fiore into the modern competitive self-defense context. Okay. This is very contentious ground. Yep. Um, So I'm curious to hear what you have to say about it. Sure. Um, So I'm going to start with a shout out to the greatest living Fioriist. Uh, okay. A man named Craig Douglas. Never had him. Never. Yep. That's not surprising. So, um, and Craig Douglas, as far as I know, has never picked up a long sword in his life. Um, so how is he a furious then? So um, his background was uh, he started in the military, um, left the military, became a police officer, um, went from regular officer to a SWAT guy. Went from SWAT guy to uh, doing undercover work for the DEA that had him buying drugs, um, doing basically entrapment and all sorts of just wild stuff. Um, And essentially, he almost died several times in that line of work, as one might expect. Yeah. Um, And he realized that his training was not adequate or suited to the realities of his work. And so okay. he, he got some people together and he said, okay, we're going to take these sim, these, you know, sim munitions guns that are completely, uh, we're going to violate the, the manufacturer recommended safety, uh, protocols and use these in yep. contact distance. Oh, Jesus. That would hurt. Yeah. Um, I, 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 this finger, I, is there a scar there? There's a shadow. Well, well, well the whole finger seems a bit wobbly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, that, I took a sim round there during one of his courses. Okay. But the long and the short of it is, through lots and lots of competitive, combative fighting with sim guns in the contact range, he reinvented Remedy Master, Albert Sari. He found right. out that the optimal combination for what he calls vertical grappling in a weapons-based environment is... Ha, 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 stop, stop, stop. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That key phrase, vertical grappling in a weapons environment. Yes. Okay. Is that not the definition of HEMA, yeah. right? Like HEMA well, wrestling no, it's, 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 it's the definition of, of a lot of what, basically the first third of Fiora's book, yeah. Right, right. And yeah. so, um, 
he he built out this curriculum. Um, he, I've watched him. I've been in his classes and watched him take uh, a bunch of people who've never done any kind of martial art in their life and get them able to deal with someone accosting them, like throwing punches, get into a grappling distance, work their way to a hook and tie, you know, take somebody's back from that position, deploy a training handgun and, and shoot somebody. Right. And he's done this yeah. over the course of a day. Um, okay. And so he's kind of like Fiore too. He travels, he travels all over the world constantly on, he does civilian courses. He does military Leo and letter agency courses um, where his job is to show up with. Sorry, dis- what is a letter agency? Um, CIA Department of Homeland Security. So uh, DHS, like, any of those acronyms that are... Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, And, uh, you know, he comes into a disinterested population uh, and tries to show them things in a very brief amount of time that will get them functional enough to, like, not die um, if if things pop off. And that pretty well aligns in my mind with, like, Fiore bopping around training artillery militias and then Fiore as you know, super high level performance coach with some of the scariest <laughs> names of his day. Right. Yeah. Sure. Um, so it's, there's in that, the, um, yeah, I, I think I've, I've essentially just started using his curriculum at BA, uh, for our wrestling work. Okay. Um, because so he's not actually a theorist at all. Not at all. Yeah. He's a reincarnation of Fiore. Yes. Quite possible. <laughs> okay. Right, he's, okay. He's, but he's, ha- yeah. has he ever actually read, have you have you shown him yes. the manuscript? Yeah. Okay. I, I the first time I emailed him, I was like, "Hey, did you know that you are doing exactly what a 15th century Italian knight said we should be doing?" And he was like, "What?" And I showed him stuff. He uses tie ups. So um, if I've got one arm overhooked on somebody's arm, I take their other arm and I shove it under, and I yeah. grab both of their arms with one of my arms. Yeah. Straight you see that, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. in the strato section. Um, he uses something called a split seat belt from that uh, when I've got and when I'm in Remedy Master, I push the arm back a little bit and I put my arm behind their body and lock down uh, their arm. That's called a split seat belt in like modern wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really good position. I don't have to worry about the arm that's over my back and I'm tying up the other hand and I have a hand free so you can deploy yeah. uh, a weapon. And that's in body. That's one. That's the first. The split seat belt is in the first. Uh, the first of the like hidden techniques that he doesn't explain. You can see the hand coming through over the forearm. Hang on a second. This is make yeah. sure. One second. Okay. So which which body technique are we talking about? The first of the uh, here the play begins here. You know the play is oh, the, 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 the section at the end. Yeah. Partito di daga finire del partito. Yes. Uh, so so. Yeah, guy's headlocking him. See yeah. that hand coming through on the Yeah, so so he's head he's headlocked. He he posts up, he postures yeah. up, and he's gonna lock that hand down, holding the, the dagger, preventing it from being able to stab him. Um okay. it, it's not the end of the technique, but you know, it's a there you go. It's a it's a wonderful little tie up that prevents injury. Um Okay, so let me just make sure we are uh, okay, so we're here, yeah? Yep, the one on the right. Yeah, okay. So the guy in the red jacket yep. is reaching behind. And it looks like he's grabbing... He, the guy in the headlock is grabbing the opponent's hip. And yeah. then... Red shirt postures up, gets his hips yeah. in under his head, 
Yeah. And then that hand that he's putting behind yellow shirt's back is going yeah. over the front of the forearm. Um, now, of course, this is an interpretation, right? I'm, I'm interpreting yeah. it. It makes but, sense because actually in the illustration, the red shirt chap's uh, hand is missing. You don't see it grabbing the dagger. It should be over the top of the forearm. Right. Um, but you don't actually see it. The um, It looks to me like the hand is is coming out up there. Like he's, he's in the process of reaching for it to my eye. Yeah, you can't actually see his hand at all. Oh. At least, at least in in the scans that I have. But okay. Anyway. Anyway, um, I will put these these pictures in the show notes, and um, we can we can discuss. I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just yeah. making sure that I'm understanding what you're saying. Yeah, and um, it's a cause, and because the problem with doing this, yeah, yeah, and the problem with doing this over the internet is that you know we can't just like get up and have a go at it and then oh that's what you mean oh yeah okay this makes sense da, da, da. it's a lot easier to, to discuss this stuff when you can actually hold the other person right actually now <laughs> um, I, I decided I pulled it up it is just a dark spot on I, I, I view that dark spot on uh, yellow shirt's bicep to be the hand based on the shape um, of the hand coming okay alright so okay um, but I'll, I'll take I will take a just look, but yeah. Anyway. Okay, so 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 state of the art right now uh, mm-hmm. for for modern combatives and self defense uh, involves playing this hook and tie game. Just a little bit ago, there was a a BJJ gym uh, that has some green berets that train there, um, okay. and they were talking about problems of room clearing and what happens when you walk through the door and somebody puts a hand on your rifle and presses it down into your body and. The solution that our trainer gives us is to dig an underhook on their left side, go to that shoulder, and come down to a bicep tie on the on the their right arm, and drive them into a wall and hold them there, and let your team member come help you out. Um, other things like that, where more and more people are looking at wrestling as being arguably one of your best options for dealing with weapons, especially in enclosed environments, especially. Yeah, many, many moons ago, must be about 2004, perhaps, 2005, maybe, mm-hmm. um, a friend of mine who used to work for the Finnish border guards, um, he had this seminar for his, um, his team. Mm-hmm. And just for fun, we had a look at how Fiori's armored combat stuff, and particularly the wrestling stuff, works against modern armor. Because, of course, these guys have sniper vests and festooned with pistols and yep. batons and all that kind of stuff, right? And the wrestling plays, one of the, one of the things that's, that you don't realize until you do it with someone who is carrying weapons on their belt, one of the things you are doing when you reach around and grab the hip and pull is you're preventing them from accessing the weapon. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right? Right. And it's just, just unfortunate that Fury didn't illustrate the wrestlers as having daggers and swords and things strapped to themselves because it, right. it makes it just makes a lot more sense when you have those things and also the way the armor changes your center of balance and changes what's vulnerable um, and changes what you can grab onto fascinating and, and it tracks actually pretty damn well to modern armor right like the you know if we're not talking about late 15th century you know totally encased in steel we're looking at I've got a breastplate over a male shirt. 
Um, and I may or may not even have leg harness when we go look at Italians and what they were fighting in. Um, there were, there's a lot of images where people just eschewed leg harness. Uh, mm-hmm. There's many congruencies um, between modern body armors and historical open-faced helmets, right? Kettle helmets right. And, and the like pseudo salets. Um, and um, there's a, there's a guy, Michael Don Vito, who um, he's, he's done a lot of training for like tier one guys, like the, the people that are doing all the high risk stuff in, in the military. And he focuses heavily in on a grappling base for um, using the knife in close quarters uh, because people can basically take lots and lots and lots of shots if those stabs aren't hitting important enough things. Yeah. Uh, and it's surprisingly hard to put a knife in important things when people don't want you to. Um, and so the best way to do that is to wrestle with them. And then you have them tied up in a way that lets you put the knife put it where you, want. you put it where you want it, and which is grisly, but it's also certainly Fiore's context. Well, I, I, this is this is a point I have to make every time I teach people who are not familiar with historical martial arts. It's this is not modern self-defense. This is absolutely no question. This is the military art of murdering the people you want to murder right. and not getting murdered yourself. Yep. Right. But and it's not self-defense. It is. You'll go it, to jail. If, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it is absolutely. Yeah. And 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 the context isn't. I am waiting for the attack because I am not wanting to fight it is i have chosen as a tactical choice to make them commit to crossing into measure before i move for right. whatever reason or if i am attacking you know i'm trying to murder the person and when they try to defend themselves i rightfully murder them some in some other way right right it's 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 not so how how do you square the murderousness of a knightly combat system with the modern legalities and ethical issues of self-defense. Right. So um, Massachusetts is a, uh, you have a, you have an obligation to retreat in public spaces. So if I'm not attached to someone um, and I'm, I'm at a distance from them and I'm not in some way prevented from leaving the area and I set up my, you know, and I wait for them to attack me and I do my rabat and my elbow press and I stick them in the neck. It's murder, right? Yeah. Uh, just straight up. Um, yeah. But when you start looking at like crime statistics, um, most assaults that are a business transaction, right? Robbery. Yeah. Those begin in the zero to three foot range and they generally yeah. begin by ambush or by attachment. Um, yeah. So someone's already, you're already wrestling in most self-defense yeah. situations, at least out in the public sphere. Um, ignoring the other problems of I'm, most, a lot of crime, um, probably most, is actually committed by people you know against you. And that's yeah. where I, I think wrestling is much better generally as a former bouncer. Um, if I, if I repeatedly punch someone in the face to get them out of my bar, um, that's going to be a problem, right? They, they go away and now I have to talk to cops out front and, and demonstrate that I had a reason for using this level of force, et cetera, et cetera. But if I grab somebody by the nape of their neck and their arm and I walk them out of the bar, you know, I say, go get Taco Bell, my guy, like stop. Yeah. It. Um, and that as a self-defense, having that wrestling facility mm-hmm. is way more valuable than most things. Um, from uh so the other so we're probably wrestling in in self-defense sure. and um there's probably a weapon in play 
right? People, people attach to you and they threaten you with weapons. Um, and then that's where we see, you know, fourth master, ninth master, fifth master, all of this, all of these aspects of the dagger can and should be used to deal with these problems. Cause there's like really elegant solutions. Um, you know, if I, if I grab behind somebody's neck with my arm on the, on the same side as the grab, uh, mm -hmm. that's one way of attaching. I could grab somebody's shirt and shove my fist up into their neck and kind of mm -hmm. try to break their posture that way. I could reach across their body and frame them off of my weapon while I'm threatening them with it. Um, if you go and you look at the solutions in Fiore, things like cutting the arm down from above into the underhook, it solves all three of those problems with one action, right? Yeah. Um, it's a simple, elegant system. So there's like specificity to it. There's whole swaths of it mm -hmm. that have zero use for modern self-defense. Yeah. Okay. Um, but there's core pieces to the wrestling to dealing with weapons in the clinch that very much reflect the current reality and are really useful if you train them at a high enough intensity. Okay. I my I have always steered the hell away from any kind of self-defense stuff. Mm -hmm. um, firstly, because it's not my interest. And secondly, because to my mind, if you're teaching self-defense, it's primarily situational awareness and don't get into the problem in the first place. Right. If you actually have to use some kind of physical... You know, technique, then things have already gone horribly wrong. Yep. Um, and you have to react immediately at full throttle and then live with whatever the legal and moral consequences of that action are going to be. It's just, it's just this, this hideous quagmire of, of downsides. Whereas if we, if we stick to the historical context, all of that goes away and yep. you get, you get, yeah, the other thing with, with, with the self-defense stuff, the physical techniques of self-defense are boring. You use like one or two things and you train them to be really, really, to be really, really good at them. And you train to perform them immediately that you are triggered, right? I would disagree with that. Really? Um, okay. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. So, um, okay. So Craig Douglas, he starts off most. So the course I took with him was his ECQC course, which is basically, I don't concealed carry. I don't even have a, a firearms license in Massachusetts because it's just, I don't care. Um, yeah. But I went there, I used a borrowed pistol, uh, did the live fire. What portion. is ECQC? Extreme cool. Close Quarters Combat okay. or Extreme Close Quarters Concepts. Um, okay. And so the first part of the whole course is um, uh, MUC, which is uh, man, he's, you know, he's a former military guy, so there's got to be acronyms. Right. Um, it's managing unknown contacts, which is basically learning the most important stage of any self-defense encounter, which is talking to people. Yeah. Um, and if you have the, you know, the higher verbal agility you can develop, the easier it is to get out of whatever is occurring. Yeah. Um, if you're not already in an ambush, then someone's going to walk up to you and say something like, Hey man, you got a light and they're going to close distance with you while you mess around with that. And then the attachment and all of those things yeah. are going to happen. Right. Um, how do you know in that moment, as someone is approaching you in benign conversation, how do you know it's time to go? Right. And, and your reaction, if my reaction is to like kick a guy in the groin and, and I jab him immediately. And then and he's, he's like belonging in prison. Right. And he's like on the ground, like, Oh my God, I was really, I just wanted to light. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I just, I'm trying to get a smoke, man. What's happening. 
Um, so wrestling gives you a really low impact initiation into the self-defense problem. And it gives you a moment to think, right? You dig that underhook, you tie that far side arm, you dig head position and you get to assess for a second. You've stabilized the clinch and you get to decide, oh, I smell alcohol. Okay. Is this guy just drunk? Is he digging in his pockets? No. Oh, he's hammered. Uh, all right. And then you snap him down and say, don't get up and then walk away. Right. That's a good legal self-defense use. Um, talking about the problem of edged weapons, most people don't know they've been stabbed until, sure. until, until afterwards. Right. You know, I, oh, he punched me. If your reaction to we are now engaging in physical violence is to wrestle, stabilize the clinch and assess, then you get to look at the hand and go, oh, that was not a punch. I see there's a knife there and I see that has, it has blood on it. Now the ten, your choices that you can legally make have just shifted. Um, so okay. I think, yeah. But how do you train a person to be able to think rationally under that level of stress? Because if you're not accustomed to that situation, which most people are not, um, how do you train the person to be able to actually have that level of detachment when presumably their pulse rate is up at about 200 yep. and they're just, you know, they're, they're, they're at maximum stimulation. Mm-hmm. Stress inoculation. It's the same thing okay. you do for like competitive wrestlers. You sure. ramp up pressure over a long period of time. And so you train people with stress inoculation. Yeah, that's one okay. aspect what of it. What do you it. use? Increasing stress levels as we're working, right? We no, just, no, no, but like, be specific. Like what, what, what do you use to generate that level of Competitive, competitive drilling. Um, so we might start, for yep. example, with some pummels. And then mm-hmm. um, in the middle of that, I shout go. And when I shout go, we have antithetical and mutually exclusive goals. My goal, for yep. example, might be to take your back. Your goal is to stamp me to the ground. Um, okay. And then people people just, just ramp up, right? Yep. The question is, how do we ramp people up into that level without injury and without um, without having a negative training environment? Yeah. Uh, and that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is the, um, the evolutions that Craig does in his course. You, there's a, there's a person. They're not a bad guy yet. And they walk up to you and they start talking to you. And, um, maybe there's a shock knife in play. Maybe there's a, a training pistol with sim rounds. You don't want to get hit. It's the closest we can get to, to mm-hmm. mimicking that kind of stress and the uncertainty of that problem, right? You put the combatives helmets on and you chat. And you decide if it's, if this is a self-defense situation or not. And then afterwards you debrief. And it was really fascinating watching people do that because four people walked away from that course and said, I cannot concealed carry. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do it from now on. They came in as somebody that carried a gun every day and they walked out of it saying, I can't, I don't know how to talk. That is amazing. Yes. I think that's because that's like the real problem. People do all yes. sorts of goofy stuff for self-defense. And that's where, um, you know, I when I talk about trying to use some of this stuff for self-defense, there's pieces of it I want to use. And then largely I want to follow the model of, you know, people who have been there and done that. Um, okay. Yeah. Like when it comes to stress inoculation, I find um, doing things that are irrationally frightening. Like I can have a full on panic attack while bouldering because I'm scared of heights. Yeah. Right. But the thing is, when I'm stuck on the wall, there ain't nobody coming to rescue me and I have to get it under control and get myself down safely. And that's that. Yeah. Right. Um, if you want absolute terror, landing an airplane, right? A little light Cessna, not going very fast. Yeah. And when you're maybe 10 feet off the ground, a crosswind just flips your wing up 
Yep. And you, you start, basically the, the plane starts to roll, right? Yeah. And, oh shit. And you have to just stabilize the plane and either do a go around or land the plane, depending on the situation. But, but yep, yep. you have to stay calm because if you panic and do what your, okay, what your brain wants to do is pull the stick back. Because the ground is the thing that's going to kill you. And if you pull your stick back, you'll go up and away from the ground. But if right. you do that at that speed, you will stall and the plane will flip over and smack its nose into the ground. Woof. I didn't right. know you piloted. That's pretty cool. I, I am, I'm about 33 flying hours into my, my aviation journey. Let's see where it goes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it is, it is like really good for this sort of thing. So how do we, how do we create the wing flipping up? in our wrestling practice, right? And, exactly. And I would say put people in a nice padded room um, yeah. and make sure they've got the headgear and the mouth guard and the cup and everything, and then create antagonistic goals, and then the wing is going to flip up, right? Well, here, here's a thought for you, though. thing is, if you and I were, were doing an exercise like that, at some level, I know that your intentions are benign. Right. Right. And a large part of the stress of any kind of interpersonal combat is the social aspect. The, there's a person who is trying to hurt me. It is much worse when it's a person trying to hurt you than when it's some random thing like a bacteria or, or a right. you know, natural disaster. It's just, it's just different in the human right. brain. Right. Um, it just occurred to me that one useful thing would be maybe to have an arrangement with a, another club that does similar things. Yes. And, and have, you have to do this exercise with somebody you've never met before. Yeah. And include, this is why I really like um, for these evolutions that Craig does. You actually don't know if you're about to get into a fight. Uh, ah, okay. Somebody could walk up to you and really trying to be having a benign conversation with you. And if you if you react incorrectly, there was one that was really interesting where um, it was an older guy uh uh, and this is, it's America. So I'm, I'm, I have to bring at least a little bit of race into it. Um, it was an older white man and a young, uh, um, Asian man. And this younger Asian guy was covered in tattoos. I don't think yeah. the older guy knew that this, the, um, Christian was the younger Asian guy. Uh, Christian's an NYPD cop, um, actually. Okay. Um, but he was just going to walk past this guy. He just got it in his head. I'm not even going to address him. I'm just going to walk past him. And the guy, engaged him in conversation and said, I need you to back away. And Christian turned to him like, what? And then the guy just immediately back the F up, like screams it at him and then tries to pull on him. Which Fuck! Everything about this, right, is like the worst possible self The worst possible reaction. Yeah. And it's just a guy walking past you. Yeah. And Christian gets on him, wrestles him to the ground gets the gun out, throws it across the thing, and then, you know, uh, fake pulls his cell phone out and is like, this crazy dude just tried to pull a gun on me. And like, we, you know, right after you debrief it. So that's, you know, the question of like, violence is always socially mediated. And it was definitely yeah. socially mediated in Fiore's time too. Like, of course, there's, there's all sorts of laws and stuff. So we, you know, um, I think there is, you know, why a wrestling base Right. Why not just pull your sword out and kill a guy? Um, because maybe vendetta, maybe you go to. You but also, and, and also, yeah, also, like if you have armor and a lot of people wear armor a lot of the time, yeah. then pulling out a sword and killing the guy, you're probably going to have to wrestle him anyway. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Fury is explicit, like wrestling is the foundation. And right. I don't think he was, I don't think he was wrong. It's just interesting to me that 
it seems to be coming full circle because wrestling yes. certainly wasn't considered the foundation of self martial arts as self defense in, for example, the 80s and 90s. Then it was all kicks and punches. Yeah. And, and then I think enough legal cases probably happened where, um, Craig does use the eye jab and it's, it's the, when we're talking and I've got my hands up and I'm, and I realize I see that he gives some criteria for what he calls pre-assault cues. The final stage of that being a definitive weight shift, right? Someone, someone puts their weight on their back foot because they're about to launch that big right hand. And if I see that legally, I don't have to wait to eat the punch before I can defend myself. Um, and what he recommends is basically hold a tennis ball and stick the tennis ball in their face at high speed. Um, and if, if we get like a corneal abrasion on the person and can run, then when we go to court about this, cause we're probably going to court about it. If it's a, he said, she said, yeah, the defendant's sitting there with a little eye patch on. Right. Yeah. But if, but if I went full Krav Maga and, you know, but also, so, so is this an imaginary tennis ball or a real? Yes. Yeah. It's imaginary. Right. It's just a way of arching your, it's actually, you know, when you, if you look at, um, I think the Getty, uh, guard of Porto de Ferro has this awkward finger arch. It's it's like he's doing little monster claws. And I always found that really interesting. It's, uh, yeah, check it out. It's, uh, it shouldn't take me this long to put my hand on the (laughs) troopers. Um, so we're we're talking about the, the Abritsari guard of Porto de Ferro. I think his, if, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, yeah, yeah. His, his, his right hand is splayed. Yeah, it's splayed and the fingers are arched. Um, okay. I, I find that like an interesting little detail to include in. Well, it's, it's, it's true in all of the guards. Oh, is it? Yeah, the backhand in Postalonga, the backhand in the Dijingaro, the right hand in Porto di Ferro, and arguably both hands in Frontale. Uh, Frontale. That's interesting. I had only ever noticed it on Porto de Ferro. So anyway, um, all that to say, like, uh, the, the it's go time argument for self-defense, I, I don't actually agree with because I think that's going to get, that presents a, a situation where you're going to get in legal trouble, uh, or it could, versus a wrestling base and the idea that you're going to establish dominant position and control and then assess what needs to happen lets okay. you make... But- but that, that doesn't that require you, particularly if you're smaller than your opponent? Because I mean, all, all wrestling competitions have weight classes, mm-hmm. right? So how does your wrestling base help you if the other person has 50 pounds on you? Uh, very well. Um, okay. Annette, one of the people that regularly comes to Stretto Sunday, uh, she's about 130, 140 pounds. She's thrown a guy more than twice her weight. Now, it, oh, sure. it, that, it wasn't that, a lift and throw, right? It was it was proper no, use of posture and position ab, and getting ab, around. Ab, absolutely, but that was that was in the south, surely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, um, there's how would that track against somebody holding a gun? I fought um, Sarah at ECQC, where we started on the ground. I had top position, mm-hmm. um, and uh, she, I would guess, she she's from a Krav club. Weighs maybe 165, something like that. Um, and she had, she had some BJJ background. And so, um, we were wrestling. We, we started out in top and bottom position. She's got a hand on my trainer. I've got a hand on hers and we're going to wrestle until somebody can get a shot off on the other person. Right. So by training, you mean training gun? A training gun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 
we went at, we went after it. I got a, I used a shin staple. I pushed her hand to the ground and I drove my shin over her hand, yeah. um, pinned her gun to the ground, pulled mine up, but she had enough of a hand on it. She pushed it out of battery. Right. And then I yank it back. I rack it off of my hip and I cause a double feed malfunction. So I've got two cartridges stuck in the slide <laughs> and she just kept her head calm. Yeah. Right. She was like, okay, he's on this. She set her hips upright. She crunched her whole body in. And when she exploded her legs out, she ripped her hand out from under my leg. Had a, mm-hmm. she, she got a click because I'd already put her yeah. out of battery. She tapped, racked, and then strung me up with it. Right. <laughs> Absolutely lit me up. So did I have severe dominance for a lot of that? Yeah. If I didn't have a double feed malfunction, would she have walked, would she have, air quotes, walked away from that? Um, probably not but it happens in the real world. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, you know, the, I forget which manuscript it is, but one of them says that the art gives the smaller man a chance. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think that's a fair, and of course weapons reduce the problem of weight. Right. It doesn't it, matter it how a strong a muscle is if it's no longer attached to the bone. Right. And that's where edge um, tools is get off me tools. Or, <laughs> yeah. So, so I, Obviously, I am thrilled anytime Fiore is found to be relevant because I'm a Fiore man through and through. Right, right, right. Um, I'm just curious as to are there no more directly relevant written sources that you could be using? Like, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of um, Sykes Fairburn and their World yeah. War II combatants, for example. I, I, for my money, I don't think you can beat wrestling. And I think that yeah. the Italian methodology of wrestling assumes weapons are in play that's why like okay. for example pedro monti wrestles from a, a two-on-one uh he's got foot sweeps and things where we're both binding up each other's arms and we're using foot sweeps i don't want to spend most of my time doing you know quote reality-based combatives um, yeah. i don't think they actually prepare you very well um versus thousands of hours of fun exciting interesting resistive training that periodically goes up to really high intensity and then we bring it back down and get get lots of good training reps in um i think you know there's a day coming uh right now i'm a financial counselor and i work at a nonprofit. um the day is coming where i try to transition into martial arts entirely and there will definitely be a hard line between I'm going to have a historical program and I'm going to have a modern combatives program. And there will be a very hard line between those two things. Sensible. Yeah. Okay. But so, you, so you want to do this for a living? Ideally, yeah. Aha! Well, um, okay. I have some advice for you. Yeah. I would love to hear it. You're the blueprint. Okay. Don't get addicted to a regular income. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> right. Because yep. it is seriously erratic and it always has been. Yep. Um, so that that's my <laughs> that's my main advice. That's good to know. Yeah, <laughs> but but okay. When when the day gets closer, if you want to just have a word, and, you know, we can have a chat about some of the specifics. Happy to help because yeah, this has been my job since two thousand one. So great, yeah. Um, but um, but I think there's no point in reinventing the wheel. Is really my big argument. Um, sure. And I I think the wheel. You know I I. Uh, um, there's a, I don't, I do not condone this man. I'm about to give a quote from this man, but I think he's probably a bad person. Um, so let me preface with that. Uh, he's okay. a big guy in the self-defense industry, Dave Grossman. Um, oh, and, right. I've quoted him in, in several places. Is yeah, he not a nice person? Okay. 
I do a little research into him. I it depends on your perspective. I I personally don't like a lot of the things I've read. Um, the uh, but he makes the he makes the statement. There's a lot of the self defense. So there's this massive background noise, some bells and jingles. Um, okay, go again. Um, again. There's this quote from him that is uh, the self defense industry is full of a lot of virgins talking about sex. Ah, that's very true. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I have no, um, you know, I, I've, I've had a number of violent encounters in my life. Unfortunately, a lot of those were family, um, which yeah. is why I bring that perspective into when I talk about self-defense. Um, but there's a lot of other pieces of violent encounters that I've never had any experience with. And I have no desire to try to talk myself up like I have. You know, I'm not going to try to invent a backstory. Uh, so I can take the experience of guys like Craig Douglas and I can look further back. I don't, I don't need to just stick to people that I can currently talk to. I can go, what are the realities that Pedro Monti is discussing? What are the realities that Fiore is advocating? Pagano, all these guys, like they did it, you know, and, mm. and there are, there are lessons see, I can that's, pull from that. That's, that's my, you know, when I, I have no interest in modern people's interpretations of swordsmanship, right? Mm. None. Because, Unless you've actually survived somebody trying to murder you with a big sword mm-hmm. or have taught people to survive somebody trying to murder them with a big sword and they have successfully done the thing, yeah, then I don't think there's any real basis for saying this is going to work because it's never actually been tested in reality. Whereas Fury's stuff is, you know, there's no doubt that he was highly respected in his time. Right. And, you know, if, if um, I don't know, if Damien Hurst... Sorry, no, wrong, wrong, wrong area. Um, take, take, take Formula One, for example. If a Formula One world champion says that guy can really drive, you, you take their opinion seriously. Right. 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 And, you know, everyone in his period was saying that Fiore could really drive. Right. So, so, you know, when I'm teaching longsword, for instance, no one should have any interest in Guy's longsword, right? Because Guy has never had a sword fight, not a real right. one. Yeah. Um, but, I'm trying to bring them Fiore's longsword stuff because that should actually work. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and again, I think that's, that's the, the problem that we have that, that Grossman, I don't know if you're quoting it correctly or not, but yeah. that's attributed to him yeah, anyway. It's whatever. Yeah. Versus talking about sex. We see that a lot in the historical martial arts world too. Yeah. Where, you know, people are taking, I don't know, something that worked for them in the tournament and saying, well, then this must be what it's, what's in the book because it works. Right. And actually the tournament situation, the modern 21st century tournament situation is nothing like any context that anyone ever experienced in the period that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And that's um, the, you know, the hallmark for me is uh, I'm going to quote Craig a lot. He's, he's the current, he's the guy at the moment. He's he's Um, your guru right now. He's my guru right now. For sure. (laughs) Um, he, he advocate, this is a guy who has been there and done that. He was robbed sure. at gunpoint nine times. He's been a dork. Where the hell does he go that he gets robbed at gunpoint nine times? That's ridiculous behavior. Buying drugs from bad people as part of his job. Oh, as part of his job. I find yeah. Okay. So as a, as a, as a, and he talked about like the worst part of this, right? He's not an addict. He's, yeah. he's mimicking the behavior of addicts. He goes yeah. to do a drug buy. Somebody sticks a gun in his face and takes the money and is like, come back tomorrow and I might sell to you. And he, he has to go back the next day. They didn't get the, you know, they didn't get the guy on camera or whatever. And like, he, he has to get yeah, robbed okay. and then he has to go back to the guy. But that's yeah. what, that's what, you know, 
uh, people people in that um, market actually do so right sure um, okay that's how right it's he's he's yeah. not like one of the guys that's like i've been in a hundred street fights you know yeah sure. it's it, it was a part of his job and he he pulled yeah. out some some commonalities of that but the um what he talks about um is you need congruent minimalist reductionist systems and when we start going and we look at like combatives manuals from world war ii or uh, where it was used and designed by people who used it, um, or we look at like Craig's curriculum, or we look at Fiore, um, there's like six things. There's like six things, yeah. and he's going to show you like a hundred yeah. different ways you, to apply them. Just just define those terms, like congruent. <laughs> what are you meaning by that? Congruent is um, so sticking my left arm up in the first master dagger cover and sticking my sword up as frontale trying to get a mid sword. Be um, mm-hmm. that's congruent, right? It's okay. it's similar uh, in the in the way that there's a structure we're employing, and that structure is yeah. is the same across multiple things. Or okay, um, so one movement is applied in many different situations. Yes, Fine. Um, okay. Minimalist. We don't have a lot of movements. Uh, the fact right. of the matter is, under high stress, you're you're in you're you know it's return to monkey. Like there's nothing yeah. complex happening um, unless you've trained some complexity. Um, and so keeping it small, uh, another quote from Craig, uh, people always say things like, oh, let's add another tool to the tool. It's, it's fine that you show me this new thing. It's another tool for the toolkit. Uh, and his quote is, well, eventually you need to stop collecting tools and you need to build some stuff. <laughs> yeah. And so like a cabinet, you know, you speaking you, as a cabinet maker. Yes. That's right. How many tools did you have? Right. Like, could it all fit? In uh, well, no. Or, no. Okay. No, 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 no. Because the thing is, the analogy breaks down really quickly. As a, like a professional. Um, uh, yeah. Like, because as a professional, it is worth having that one specific shaped chisel for that one job that you probably only do once every three years, but it saves you three hours every time. Mm. And at, you know, the, the tool costs $50. Your hourly rate is 75. It saves you three hours you buy the tool. Right. So for, uh, I guess for me as the hobbyist woodworker, um, that's different. Yeah. I, yeah. I keep coming back to like, I've got, I've got a fine saw and a rough saw. I've got, you know, um, sure. I was thinking just the other day, just the other day I was thinking, cause I have lots of tools, right? right. And, and I'm actually divesting myself of some of them at the moment because I've got more tools than I can reasonably use. Um, because I have a little bit of a tool collecty thing going. Like I have a little bit of a, book collecting thing going mm-hmm. um but like you know what like woodworking planes 95 percent of my woodworking can be done with my five and a half and my apron plane right that's that's really all i need and i could do without the apron plane if i had to mm-hmm. right um and chisels i mean you need a quarter inch and you need a three quarter inch everything else is just makes life a bit easier mm-hmm. right you need a not hard hitty thing like a mallet yep. right and you need a hard hitty thing like some kind of hammer i have 13 different hammers and they're all different and i need them all for different things mm-hmm. but actually i could just do it with one right yeah, yeah. so <laughs> you know? minimalist right, yeah, um, right. If, if we can get the toolkit small there's a higher yeah. ch- especially in uh what he's doing where he's got you know, it's, it's unit mandated training that, mm-hmm. you know, half of the dudes there are hung over. They don't care. Yeah. Um, and, and he's got to, he's got to try to walk them out of there with functional skills. 
Yeah. Um, and so the, the more minimalist it can get and the more reductionist in the sense of there's, you know, the, the art is deep and vast, but if I want to get you functional, I need, I need to impart a, a small list of things to at least ensure that you don't die, um, or, or give you the best chance to not die. Uh, and so that's the reductionist part. We don't, we don't do depth and, and breadth. You look so in fact, eternal. it's all, it's all really reductionist. Like congruence, I don't have lots of different movements. Minimalists don't have lots of different movements. Reductionists don't have lots of different movements. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, that, that uh, makes a lot of sense. And there's and some for, nuance there, but yeah, yeah. And, and for, for training people for a self-defense situation, that's exactly right. I would yeah. say not that yeah. I'm a self-defense expert, but that's how I would see it. And that's exactly why I've got no interest. Gotcha. You like the you like the breadth I, and yeah, I like the breadth and I like the depth. And when I sword fight with someone, I want it to be two reasonably expert people coming together to express the glory of the art. Right, right, right. Right. So yeah. fancy shit. Yes, please. And actually, yes. there was an element. There was definitely an element of that back in the bad old days. Right. Because Sura got to look good. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And winning the fight was great, but winning the fight in an interesting way was better. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's like, right. Like, so, and that's where, um, I think the solution I, I, I like, um, uh, Aaron Janetti is another guy that I'm a big fan of with knife control concepts. Um, he's, uh, another guy that came to the conclusion that under severe pressure wrestling is pretty good. Um, hmm. and he put most of his stuff into play. Like play is the primary modality. And it's yeah. interesting to me that play is also like Marazzo is it's, it's the play. Well, yeah. All of Fiora's techniques are technically plays. Zogby. Right. Yeah. And the, but the, you know, I think there's a good division available in the Bolognese where there's, you know, there, there are the, the assaulty for the play, uh, embellishing your way into the play. Mm-hmm. And then there are the assaulty for the spada da filo. And, and those right. get super boring and minimalist and. Right. Like, Cause that's, that's right? an actual sword fight that you actually yeah. need to win. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Now I have a couple of questions that I, I usually um, ask my guests. Um, and the first is, what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? Best idea I haven't acted on yet. Is it turning uh, pro? Uh, maybe. I, I think there's, um, it, I haven't acted on it because I'm not prepared to act on it yet. But um, I've translated now Fiore's wrestling, the wrestling bits in Vadi, uh, Pagano, uh, Monty and I'm I'm interested in in developing kind of a um, wrestling in the Italian tradition kind of curriculum where oh, where, where we just pull it like there are commonalities for across all of these uh, uh, writers so what are those commonalities and how how do we pull that out and how do we make it a functional training program as well so I'd say okay. that's a that's a good idea huh that's a very good idea actually that's okay. I'm already thinking how I would do it. Um, I'm going to tell you how I would do it because this is a conversation and I can say what I like. (laughs) Okay. I would probably start with transcription, translation, and interpretation of all of the specifics. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right? All the specific plays. So the reason to start with that is so that anyone who is looking at your results can see exactly how you got there. Yep, yep. So, so if, for instance, somebody disagrees, you know, I don't know if you've, you've got my From Medieval Manuscript to Modern Practice book, but basically it's, it's that for the longsword plays from Fiore. Mm-hmm. And it's so that, let's say you don't agree with my way of doing the Punta Falsa, you can have a look at, okay, 
do you think I've made a transcription error? So am I reading the original text wrong? Okay, maybe that's fine, maybe it's not. Have I, have I translated it into English correctly? In other words, have I understood what Fiori wrote? Is there a mistake there? And then when I discuss how I interpret it, you may have a difference of opinion about how things are weighted or, or my conclusions. And then there's a video clip at the end saying, and this is how I do it. And you may actually agree with me all the way, but you, you would execute it differently. Mm-hmm. Right. Or you may find that there's what you think is a transcription error and you may be right or not. Who knows? We'd have to check that. Uh, which has led to a translation error, which has led to an error in the mm-hmm. interpretation, which has led to the thing you're disagreeing with on the video. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So that level of transparency, I think, is what we should be aspiring towards. Yeah. And that's, um, that's been done. I've followed that. Yeah. Um, right. That, followed that but then you've got to publish it. Yeah. Well, and I got to, I got to actually, do the hard part of looking at f- five or six disparate sources and trying to see what's common between them and then, right. and then be able to argue for why I actually, you know, let me pull out this quote. Let me pull out this, this piece of uh, this image. You know, this is why I think this is all that way. And that's, that's the part where I just got, I keep- have a suggestion. I have a suggestion. Mm-hmm. And again, how I would do it. I would pick the most complete and the one with the biggest number of techniques. Right. And I would use that as the base and then I would use the rest as additional material, right? Because if you synthesize a method out of it, you have an awful lot of work to do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But if you have, this is the base, and in this situation, we borrow this from Montic because Fiori doesn't cover it. Of course, I'm assuming Fiori is the base because I'm a Fiori person, right? So we, we take this from Monte, we take this from Vadi, we take this from wherever else, right? And that way, it's it's easy to trace where everything has come from, and you can fill in any gaps that you see, right? And then you publish that because that's already super useful. Mm-hmm. And then when people have been training it for a while, a synthesized method will naturally emerge. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and then at some later date, when you've run it through a few hundred students, you then have your synthesized method because your students have synthesized it for you. And naturally. then you can write, then you write, if you like, the beginner's book. Right. Right. The, once, um, once, once, once the synthesis has been done. Some of these sources, like Pagano, for example, he names a bunch of techniques and only briefly describes a couple of them. But then he does give us a weird rock, paper, scissors thing, which I find fascinating, where mm-hmm. um, the collar tie is defeated by the body lock. The body mm-hmm. lock is defeated by uh, what the Germans call placing the hook or what mm-hmm. uh, Monty calls uh, the mediana, putting mm-hmm. a leg between somebody's leg and wrapping it around because then they can't lift you. Right? Yeah. Um, so he he lays out uh, this kind of rock, paper, scissors of position. And then we've got Monty that's also very concept based. And then like all these, these foot sweep techniques that aren't mm-hmm. really in anything else. But um, I'm kind of interested in approaching it from that. Uh, there are... Very few people give us an operating system, um, yeah. which is the the tough part. Like plays, plays are great until we can, and, and from the plays we can probably derive the operating system that's allowing the applications of each play to be run. Um, but Monty, I think, provides the most thorough layout of a of an operating system of okay. anybody. Um, so, well, I think you should get on and get on and do this, and I think you yeah. should do it like soon because I'll be very interested. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, if you need it, need any like you want to like bounce ideas around or have any you know, need any advice or 
feedback or any of that sort of stuff, just ping me. All right, I appreciate Cause, that. Because I, I think this would be an extremely useful resource. Because it's because we're not talking about basically a superficial overview of some cool resting techniques from different masters. Yeah, right. It's what, what's the core of their? You know, there's one piece that I think is pretty assured. The Italians are worried about knives, or at least they want to train their wrestling in a way that matches up. Oh, there's a knife in play. I change nothing, right? Yeah. Um, and then okay, you know, Fiori's first master of, of the Abruzzi, right? Where um, the scholar, or sorry, the, the companion, has their left hand on the master's right shoulder, and their right arm is bent as if they're about to punch him in the stomach, right? And you cover the their left elbow with your right hand, and you're about to roll it over into a into an armbar, mm-hmm. and your left arm extends, and it controls the elbow, mm-hmm. right, of that bent right arm. Just stick a dagger in that right hand. Yeah, it's exactly uh, the same. Nothing changes. Exactly yeah. right, and the, yeah. um, and even the way you roll into the armbar puts the dagger away from you. Gets your body away, and you're using yeah. your weight on the elbow that you just destroy that support arm. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and you're basically you're, you're putting their face and body in between their dagger and you. Yes, and they can. It, they, their option yeah. is like feed their own weapon into themselves. If we put this in the armed context, yeah. um, so it's it, exactly right. That's that's what I'm seeing. Is like mm-hmm. look at that look at that congruency between. And Monty's yeah. explicit. He the first line of his dagger stuff is. Eh, wrestling and dagger, you use the same stuff. I'm not really going to talk too much about it. And then he gives you like two paragraphs on backhand grip and forehand grip. And he's like, you're good to go. Just wrestle. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. Now my last question, somebody gives you a million dollars or some similar imaginary amount of money to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend it? Uh, rebuild the Raymond J. Lord collection, but as public domain scans. Explain. Okay. So the Raymond J. Lord collection, which is actually, I believe, at the University of Amherst here in Massachusetts, has something like 150 historical fencing texts. Okay. Just an absolutely wild number. Are you familiar with the collection before I... I've not visited it, but I I know of it. Yeah. So you're you're pulling out the explanation for people who don't know. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's the, my job here. I, yeah, I've got to right, right, right. be good for something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so the, uh, you know, it's like 150 um, manuscripts. And for a long time there, they had the PDF. Um, the PDFs were available on just this long list. You click a link and it pulls up a, a PDF mm-hmm. scan of the book. Um, and all of them retained certain kinds of copyright. Um, I personally would love to see a lot of these things. Totally public domain. Um, right. And I, I really respect, you know, one of the things I'll, I'll point out with you, when you got that scan of Marazzo and you just put it out there and we're like... Oh, no, I, I have the book. I own the book. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, I, I, yeah I photographed my Marazzo. I photographed my Fabris. I photographed my Girard. I haven't photographed my Capoferra yet, but I will. Yeah. that's. Thanks for uh, reminding me. I need to photograph my Capoferra. I've had it for a year and I haven't photographed it yet. Oh, so you're you're doing the thing I do with a million dollars, right? I okay. I want to I'd want to buy up books. I want a nice give, document you scanner. Give, you can give me the million dollars if you like. That sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we, we, it's subcontracting. Well, it's right. subcontract. Um, but yeah, that's I. You know, the more of this stuff that winds up in the public domain, um, like translations. As someone who's done translating, I get trying to you know like pay me a little bit for my time. Like you know, I but, I put in effort. I see. I. I translated Vadi, right? 
and I put the um, the translation in the not in the public domain, but available as a, on a Creative Commons um, uh, license, so that anyone can use it for anything. It's just you have to give credit where it came from, right? Right? Because I find I think that the 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 information in the text ought to be freely available. Mm. But what I charge for is if you want it in a if you want the interpretation stuff that goes with it, oh. you have to pay for that because that's my work. That's me. Um, and if you want um, the physical copy, you have to pay for that, obviously, because it's a physical product and there are costs involved. Right. Yeah. But but the the translation itself, it's free for anyone. If once we get hosting set up on um, where I think I forget what the hang up was, but the Boston Armazari website will hopefully have a translation section soon with okay. any, anything I've translated. Um, yeah. Well, and also feel free to license. the the translations of theory that I've I've published in for medieval manuscript to modern practice. The translation that's also could be posted free on a creative free on a Creative Commons license. It's all of the interpretation and all the other stuff. Basically, the what I think of the translation mm-hmm. um, and you know, the introduction and all that kind of stuff. That's copyrighted, but I have the translation itself. Creative Commons, absolutely anyone can use it. Because again, this stuff needs to be out there. Um, so, what is there in the Raymond J. Law's collection that we don't already have from somewhere else? Um, there's a lot of like small sword and saber. Um, okay. There's some distress attacks. Uh, there's Jarek Swanger has done an incredible job bringing high quality Bolognese translations out there. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. With like a, you see the explosion of interest where suddenly it is making sense to people because it's a really solid translation. Uh, most of those. Most of those Bolognese texts are in are in the collection. Um, yeah, okay, but those are all available elsewhere. I mean, Vigiani yeah. and Marozzo. And- they have Manchilino, Marozzo, Von Arswald, Agrippa, uh, Le Kuchner, Grassi, Degrassi, D'Alagaccia, um, Henri de Saint-Didier, who's really, I find him really fascinating. Lavino, people I've never looked at, like um, Gunterat. I've never even heard of that. Okay. So what, what I should do is I should have a look at that list. Pop a link in the show notes. Um, sure. Send me, send me the link and we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, and have a look and see if any of that isn't already available. Because most of these books, I think, are already out there somewhere. Okay. Yeah, um, maybe just the, um, you know, if you, if you pull up uh, the, um, the terms of use include you are welcome to redistribute unaltered copies of this document, mm-hmm. um, but you can't alter it. Uh, That's fair. Or well, yeah. So the document itself, I think the um, the ability to dissect this and pull it apart and put out a particular plate with your interpretation next to it and things like uh, that. Okay. Like the, so, I, so you'd you'd like to get it into the public domain? Yeah, essentially, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of stuff that yeah. if it were in the public and, domain, people could mess and, with. Well, absolutely. I mean, like the Getty did this with the pictures of the Getty manuscript, the Fiore Getty manuscript. They produced a hundred DPI. So maximum high level, high quality pictures and scans. Um, I don't know if they're photographs or scans, but they're there and free for any use. Right. Including commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, just, it's just fantastic. It's like, right. That's, and also the funny thing is, I think it increases the value of the object because like if you go to the Louvre, what is the one painting everybody wants to see? I'm not familiar enough with the Louvre. The Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa's there. Okay. Right. It's, it's like, like there's, there's usually 
a like eight deep crowd around the Mona Lisa, which is not the best painting in the Louvre by a million miles, right? But it's the most famous painting because it was stolen. And there was this great big newspaper thing about it ages ago, like 110 years ago or something like that, right? And so it became super famous. And so people go to see it because it's famous. And it has been reproduced probably a billion times by now, probably more, because it's been on like tea towels and mugs and whatever. And the Louvre don't own all those pictures because you can go in there and you can take a picture and you can do whatever you want with it, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't think the Louvre have suffered from copyright theft yeah. Right. Because you can also get from the Louvre itself, if I recall rightly, it certainly was true the last time I was there. You can get like a high quality photograph printed onto canvas of paintings like the Mona Lisa from the Louvre itself. Right. right. So you get this souvenir. Like, I don't know if you can see over there. Um, I have a poster of um, Lorenzetti's Allegory of Good and Bad Government uh, from the Palazzo Pubblico in Siena. Unbelievable sort of room decoration. And they're huge. And I've got I've got part of it above my desk. I've got part of it over there in that corner. And the other part of it is going to go in that corner when I built the cabinet to go underneath. And it's like, you know, those reproductions, they do not diminish the value of the original artwork. They enhance right. it. Because what is the one thing I'm going to do when I go back to Siena? Check it. Yeah, you got to go see there's it. Only, been- there's, only one, there's only one item on my list of absolute must-dos in Siena. And that is go to the Plaza Publico and go see the Allegory. Right. Right. The more people we get into HEMA who study Fiore, the more... I mean, anytime I'm in New York, I always check the listing at the Getty to see if it's on display. All right. I've yet to be in New York at the same time, but the day's coming, and then it's a day trip. I'm staying there the whole day, patronizing that and looking at it as long as I can. And honestly, they're very nice there. You can probably make a persuasive argument that you should be allowed to, even if it's not on display, go into the collections room and wherever it is they they give it to you and you can actually like sit there and read it yeah we're we're an actual non-profit now too so we could send a uh the some a group from the club we've we've threatened that repeatedly and then covid kind of threw the, uh, <laughs> the wrench in it but yeah that's we should we should we should check out if Excellent. we can send some people okay so you're going to spend your million dollars getting historical martial arts texts into the public domain yes that would be fantastic if i had the money i'd give it to you <laughs> you're, you're, you're almost certainly more qualified for that work so you hand it over and I'm like alright I have a deal for you brilliant alright well thank you so much for joining me today and it's been really nice to meet you yeah thanks for having me this was a lovely conversation thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ian you can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast where you will find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, as you jolly well should, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Person's Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember to go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. Join us next week when we'll be having a special behind-the-scenes episode where I chat with Katie McKenzie, who is the organizing principal behind the show, the person who gets everything scheduled, organized, and out on time. The reason you can rely on a Sword Guy episode every Friday morning is entirely down to Katie. And of course, as is usual for me, we also digress into all sorts of other areas. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. 
And of course, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends on the socials by email or by any other means. You can even attach it to a carrier pigeon and throw it in the air if you like. Because really, why would you keep the good stuff to yourself? That would just be mean, right? So go share the show and I will see you next week. Thank you.